Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today, Jennifer Broom. And before we get to Jennifer, here's a few announcements. First, our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. Go there and see photos of our guests. You can see links to their websites and social media. You can see links to our social media, which is, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. There's a Facebook page. You can follow us there. You can see links to Stitcher Radio and Apple Podcasts. We're pretty much wherever you get podcasts. So wherever you get your podcast from, if you use an app or whatever, all I ask is that you please subscribe and maybe give us a like and say a few nice things because that boosts our presence online and helps more people find us. So if you can do that, I'd appreciate it. Hey, maybe you want to be on the show. Maybe you know somebody you'd like to be on the show. Maybe you want to write me and say nice things. Maybe you got travel questions. Whatever it is, the way to reach me is... TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. All right, Jennifer Broom is someone I met years ago. And I'm trying to think when that was. Maybe around 2016, 2017, maybe somewhere around there. I was in Houston promoting the Rocky Mountaineer train in Canada. And we're doing a morning show in Houston. And I came out, I think it was Canada Day. I can't remember. Whatever it was, Jennifer was one of the hosts of this morning show in Houston. So I went down there and talked about the Rocky Mountaineer train and talked about Canada and everything else. And that's how we first met. But since then, I've been following her exploits on Instagram. And you can follow her on Instagram at Jennifer Broom with an E, Jennifer Broom Travel. She goes to many places around the world. And I noticed recently that she was posting photos from Mount Everest, where she did something that I've been trying to do for years and wanting to do for a long time. And that's hike to Mount Everest Base Camp. I've talked to a couple people on this show over the years who've done that trek, and I've been wanting to do it for a long time. So I asked her about it, and I wanted to know how her experience was, and she talks about it. And it still made me want to do it. She didn't scare me away from it. So that's a good thing. She's currently living and working in Denver, where she does local news and does the weather. She's a meteorologist. And it was fun to reconnect with her. So here she is, fresh off Mount Everest, Back in the Mile High City, which has got to feel like a low elevation to her at this point. Here's my chat with Jennifer Broom. Jennifer Broom, hello. How are you? Doing well. How about yourself? I'm good. How's Denver these days? You know, it's a little on the windy side. It's been a crazy windy spring. Uh, it's no accident I ask you for the weather report because uh, you do that, right? Are you still doing that professionally? Yes, I am. Once a meteorologist, always a meteorologist. <laughs> but you know, like now I have the opportunity to combine my love of weather with my love of travel. Right. So uh, let's start really how you got to be. First of all, you should tell people where can they see you or what channel are you on? Well, you can um, locally, I still freelance with my TV home here in Denver, which is KDVR, uh, which is Fox 31 and Channel 2. Um, and then you can see me on different outlets. Sometimes I show up on local stations across the country, sometimes pop it in on the Weather Channel like I did from close to Everest Base Camp and, you know, just enjoy sharing my love of weather and also enjoy sharing my love of learning about this planet and traveling and experience different places and cultures. Well, I studied journalism in uh, college and everything, and I worked at a newspaper, but I was doing like sports out of college and that kind of thing. Uh, weather I had knew nothing about. How does one get into weather and why does one get into weather and where did you start? My first weather job was Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Uh, I actually grew up in Greenville, South Carolina and graduated from college with a degree in journalism from the University of South Carolina. And three months out of school, I was offered an opportunity to do weather in Myrtle Beach. I'm like, 
go live at the beach? Yes, of course I'll do that. But I did ask that they send me back to school because I felt like if I was going to talk about weather on TV that I wanted to learn the science behind it. So I went back to school. I earned a second degree. Um, I earned a BS in geoscience with emphasis in meteorology, one of those long degree <laughs> degree titles. Um, I earned that from Mississippi State University. So, um, you know, I just felt really strongly about wanting to know the science and went from Myrtle Beach to Knoxville, Tennessee, to San Antonio, Texas, where I was there for 10 years. I was one of the first female chief meteorologist in the country, which basically just means you're head of the department. Um, and then came into Denver, went back to Texas to host a TV show briefly, and came back uh, to Denver, and I now call Denver home. So I, in 2017, uh, because of just some personal life, life Life decisions, life changes, uh, I made a choice to go 100% freelance. And that gave me an opportunity to travel the world, to spend, uh, thankfully, my mom's last few years on this planet, spend uh, some real quality time with her. Um, you know, a lot of folks ask me, well, why did you go freelance? And my brother passed away in 2016. He was my only sibling. And when that happened, I made a promise to him that I would... Um, Never stay in a job or a relationship if I wasn't 100% happy. Now, realistically, you cannot be 100% happy in every moment in either one of those. But you know <laughs> right. what I mean? You know, I mean, you have to be more happy than you're not happy. And I really felt strongly of I wanted to go find my joy and I wanted to go and enjoy life. And, and what I love doing is talking about the weather and sharing the weather, but I also in love traveling and sharing experiences and places, whether it's here in the United States, I've visited all 50 states. Uh, a lot of them I've done multiple road trips through, and there's just so much to see out there. And, and this now gives me the opportunity to share my love of travel, weather, the outdoors, ancient history, um, different cultures, experiences, and share those, which I do on multiple platforms from broadcast television to writing for AAA. I do for multiple different regional uh, publications for AAA. And I also do stuff for AAA National. So, you know, once I guess once a journalist, always a journalist, same thing for the, the meteorology as well. So it's kind of a unique perspective. I'm kind of a, I consider myself very much a curious George. I ask a lot of questions because I want to learn myself. And, and I think everyone has a better story about their life. Um, that's always more interesting than mine. So I like to learn. Well, this is an easy one for me because I can ask you one question and then just let you go. There you go. For like, <laughs> for like 10 minutes. This is going to be great. Uh, I believe we met in uh, in your Texas days. I don't know if you were freelancing down there. This was, uh, But I want to say it was Houston, not San Antonio. Yeah, it was Houston. That's when I was, um, I helped to launch a show called Houston Life. And, um, and then I also co-hosted that show. So it was, you know, it was a very fun, different experience, especially coming from, as you know, the news background, going into a daily lifestyle show is a whole different ball game. Uh, but I loved it. It was a great experience, but it was also during that time, my brother had passed away right before that. And I will always be grateful to the general manager who said, it's okay for you to go find yourself and, and understanding that at that point in time, that was 2017, um, you know, that mental health and your emotional well-being for each person truly are paramount. And you have to take care of yourself before you can take care of anyone else. And um, I kind of, I, I will always appreciate that he said, go find your joy, go get it, go have fun. Well, I went down there as uh, I was working with the Rocky Mountaineer train as it's, uh, you know, for uh, Canada. And I believe it was like Canada day and I wore my Canada shirt. They asked me to wear <laughs> <laughs> Even though I'm not you Canadian, know, you, know, Rocky Mountain, you know Rocky Mountaineer is now um, going from Denver, Denver to, to Moab. Moab. Yeah. yeah, I haven't taken it yet, although I know a, a few people that have. It just they've asked me about it, but it just hasn't worked out schedule wise. So I want to do it for sure. I did the um, one in Canada like three times. Well, so I haven't done it either, so we'll go oh, do really? it together. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a weird segment. I went out and then it never aired. Like uh, I went with. Um, the well-traveled Texan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember. Her. I'm sorry. She's going to hate it. But my name, I can't remember her name right now off the top of my head. And we all did the segment together. And uh, but it didn't air for one reason or another. That's, and it was, that's it, strange, it was odd like, circumstances. And that, I felt uh, like it did air. I felt like it aired. Huh. We'll have uh, to do. Uh, we'll have to both become investigative. Yeah. Journalists. I smell fishiness. That's what I smell. <laughs> 
But whatever it was, um, I remember that trip and it's the weirdest thing. But and it was really sad. Was it that trip? And I was in Houston. I'm trying to think of the year, but I was in Houston when Prince died. I was in the hotel and remember seeing it on the air. But I think that might have been a separate trip. Yeah, that was way earlier. (laughs) Scratch what I just said right there. It was Houston, but then I'll always have Houston and I'll, I'll link Prince with that because I was in a Houston hotel room watching the news when I saw it. Yeah. So weird. He's been gone. He's been gone a while now. Yeah. It's uh time flies, doesn't it? You know, it's funny. It's like, I, I wonder you know, where it goes. Cause it's all of a sudden it's like <laughs> you start one month and then it's the next and then it's, then the season's gone. And then, the, you know, then you're yeah. in half the year and then the whole year's gone. I, you know, I guess they say sometimes like, what is the saying? The days are long, but the years are short. Yeah. And I'm kind of feeling like the older I get, the truer that becomes. Well, it's, I knew a guy I used to do a joke that, uh, that I worked with that he, he said, you know, when you're young, you measure time by your, you know, your grade and the school year and all this other stuff. And then you get to a certain age, it's just birthday, 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 birthday. And that's the it way it is. is. And, then, and then, you know, we get older and older. It's like you start as a child and then the older you get, you start reverting back to a child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like, hey, you know, we started in diapers. We're going to end up in diapers. Absolutely. That's the way it goes. <laughs> and we should be so lucky to live that long. Right. Yes, we should. Um, so I wanted to ask you about I mean, originally, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while because I follow you on Instagram and everything. But also uh, you caught my eye because you did the Everest base track, uh, base camp track. Uh, recently. And I've been meaning to do that for years. And then I was putting it off and putting it off. I did Kilimanjaro, but I didn't, I didn't do uh, base, you know, Everest base camp was my next one. And then COVID happened. And and as we know, we lost two years there to (laughs) not going anywhere. And uh, you finally went somewhere. So tell me how I'm sure you've been planning this for a while, but tell me when did Nepal open up? And did, was this something you had on the books before and you had to push it or was it this was just like a spur of the moment thing? How did it work? Well, it was so this was originally planned for April 2020. Yep. Um, I you, you just said spur of the moment. Pretty much at that point was a spur of the moment. I have a dear friend. Uh, his name is Dr. John Kodrowski. He has a trek guiding service. Uh, he's up in bail and somebody that I trust when I'm on a mountain, I've hiked multiple times with him and he was leading a very small group. Um, they were all elite athletes and I was going to be the unprepared journalist going with them. Then of oh, course, really? COVID hit <laughs> and we all know how that goes, but it actually, you know, it's funny how, um, you know, you know, timing works out because my 50th birthday, July 3rd, I started July 3rd of, uh, 2021 that I'm going to do 50 places to 50. In Nepal and going to Everest Base Camp, one of those places. Well, actually, multiple places because you do. I get to count all the places that I went. Um, but it it just became for me one of those. As it got closer and closer, it became a terrifying goal because it's all of a sudden. Wow, I'm about to trek a lot of miles. If you just do just the trek itself, it is 40 miles from Lukla to Everest Base Camp and then back. But you also have to take two days and do some hikes to acclimatize. And then we added actually going all the way into base camp. So if you're a trekker, you go to the rock that everybody sees, you know, it says you know, Everest, um, Everest base camp on it. But you don't really go into base camp unless you're invited. You know, they're trying to keep people healthy. And that's been going on you know, pre-COVID. And so but we were allowed to go in because of my friend John's. He summited Everest three times. He was there in the earthquake in 2015 um, at base camp. So he has an enormous experience. You know, he's um, taken groups. He also private guided. If you know uh, Mike Posner, he is a a, a singer songwriter. A lot of folks know who that is. His song, uh, I Took a Pill in Ibiza, very (laughs) popular. And he took he took Mike, which Mike was supposed to be in that group I was going with in 2020. So he walked across America. He's now summited Everest. You know, you get the idea of the athleticism of the people I was going to go with in 2020. Well, I ended up going, you know, this, this April, and I was just absolutely blown away by the experience. Um, I thought I knew all about it. Everything that I knew, um, I just didn't know enough. And, and I'm kind of excited to share the story of the actual trek because I feel like when people hear Everest Base Camp, 
They are so focused on the Everest climbing season. There is a big difference between people that want to summit Everest and people that want to just trek to Everest. Oh, no. Summiting Everest is insane. I mean, that's like you got to be really, you know, well, the problem is people that aren't skilled are doing it and they're dying and things like that. But also uh, that's hard and it's super, super expensive. And it's technical uh, and that kind of thing. So on no, both, basically, on both yeah. Accounts, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you so, know, I'm scared of heights. I'm scared of heights. I don't, <laughs> it's insane. Know, At one I point in my know. life, like in my 20s, I was like, yeah, I want to climb Everest. And then I got a little older. I was like, no, the, the, no, that's, you know, I, and I read into thin air, which, you know, it scared me <laughs> off it forever. But you know what I mean? It's it's dangerous. It's super, super dangerous, too. Well, and, you know, I mean, in, um, you know, acute mountain sickness, is a real thing. It can kill you. And that's, you know, when you're dealing with just the altitude. And when I got to base camp, there were a couple of things that I I was blown away by. First of all, how big it is. So from the rock to where we went, which was Arnold Coster um, expeditions right by the the icefall, the most dangerous part where, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out right now new routes that they can go. So maybe they can bypass the icefall. Um, but you know, going there, well, it was additional mile, I was like, I I knew base camp was big. I didn't know it was that big. There was a coffee shop in there. There was, you know, and you see all the different expedition teams and they're there. And what people don't realize is like, you don't just trek to there and then say, okay, I'm going to stay for a week and I'm going to go summit Everest. No, those people are there for like 40 to 45 days or longer. Um, you know, where they're going through because they have to go through different rotations where they might come down to um to say Lobache and then go up and climb Lobache, which is a 20,000 foot peak, um, you know, or they're going to go and they do their rotations, which is what they were doing while I was there. They were in camp one and camp two. So they'll go up to a camp and then come back down to base camp. Then they'll go up to camp two, come back down. And then once you go beyond that is when you get to camp three, camp four, and then hopefully you summit. Um, but those people, I, I truly feel like you have to have that strong desire. And if you don't have that strong desire to summit Everest, then it is not for you. And it's, it, it's just not, it, it, seeing Everest Base Camp, seeing Everest was what was on my bucket list and, and doing this trek. So my trek ended up being 90 miles round trip. I found out while I was there, you can take a helicopter out. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Trust me, I, I actually started feeling really bad at Base Camp and I was begging people. I was like, please just put me on a helicopter. And they're like, no, you're not sick enough. I'm like, but I really might want to fly out, Um, you know, but it's, it's just fascinating. And I mean, the people, you know, as you watch in the every season, whether it be in the spring or be in the fall, those people, and especially the Sherpas. And I think they are truly the unsung heroes, the Sherpas and the porters, the unsung heroes, whether you're trekking or whether you're going for the full summit expedition, the skills that they have, the physical ability of these people, in Nepal, I just daily was just floored, you know, when I'm on a trek and I'm struggling just to put one foot in front of the other. And it feels like I'm just going through quicksand and it's so hard and I'm just trying to breathe and the porters come flying by, you know, I mean, and they're carrying anywhere from at least 60 pounds, at least 60 pounds on their back and maybe carrying up to a hundred pounds. You know, it just puts it into perspective of a lot of different things. Like there was a guy carrying, it was on the way down. And there was a guy who was literally carrying a washing machine on his back. <laughs> yeah. And like, like we were, we were, cause we were hiking down and he was coming up and it's like, he gets closer and closer. And, and it's like, is he carrying, he's carrying a washing machine. And I just kind of stopped and I took a moment and I said, there's always someone carrying a heavier load than you always. Yeah. Oh, whatever I'm, you're going through, somebody else is going through worse. We, uh, we said the same thing about the, the porters in Kilimanjaro, you know, we were sitting there, we were going up and they would make us carry our little day pack, you know, and we're there all Gore-Texed out with our, you know, nice equipment and nice shoes and expensive hiking boots and this whole thing. And some kid with a giant, you know, carrying supplies or hu- our big bags uh, in flip-flops is going past us. <laughs> we're like, oh, that's, you know, that kid's getting a good tip. That's what I see. You know, and that's, that's part of it too. It's, um, you know, it's, 
And they're so grateful. They're so grateful for those tips and they work so incredibly hard and they're so kind. You know, I will tell you every time we saw our porters, because um, of course, being the slowest one in my group, um, which I have no problem saying that. Look, you know, a 49 year old hanging with 30 somethings automatically going to be the slowest one. And but each time the porters that they would come by, they passed me one day, they would always smile and say hello. Um, and, you know, and even though there's some, you know, there's some language barriers, uh, but just a bright smile. But yet they're carrying these heavy lo- or the people that are carrying like multiple doors or, yeah. <laughs> you know, just, or washing machines. <laughs> You know, things pile on top of things. And it made me realize that while at base camp, they may have all of their supplies flown in, which was another thing I realized, like things were flown in. um, Nothing stays there. Uh, At the end of the season, it all comes out. Um, so that means in the spring season and the, and then also in the fall season, um, you know, especially going into winter, into winter, they don't leave up like tents or these domes or things. None of that stays. So they fly things in into base camp, but anywhere else on the trek, everything from a Sprite or a Coke that you have to the flour and the sugar that's, you know, used to make whatever food you're eating, um, everything is brought in by a person on their back or by livestock, um, which was another challenge. I don't know how much you had to deal with that on Kilimanjaro, but being through so many different mountain villages, you know, I mean, the look, if I'm going on hanging bridge and there is you know, a train of donkeys coming from the other way, or, or it's called a uh, Zopkio, they're the cross between a cow and a yak or a train of yaks coming as you get higher up. Um, you know, they get the right of way. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, so it's like dealing with that too, of, of animals, you know, sharing the trail with animals is a little bit different than, than normal trekking and hiking in the U S. <laughs> right. So I know in, so in say Kilimanjaro, I think our starting gate was about eight, eight to 9,000 feet. I think around 8,000 and the peak was 19,300 and something feet. And I think the difference is like uh, Everest base camp is around 18,000 something, right? Uh, I, believe. I went up to about 17,500. Okay. But you start higher, I think. Um, Not really. So Lukla uh, is about the same as, say, Breckenridge, Colorado. Breckenridge is 9,600. Okay. sits at about, um, you know, there's different readings. It depends on what part of town you're in. Um, but Lukla, you, you fly in, um, which in and of itself is an experience. Yeah, it's supposed um, to be like the, the scariest airport ever in the world to fly into because it's super yes. high and then... You know, I've flown into Aspen, which is kind of this, you know, I, people are scared to fly into there because you have to go over a mountain ridge and then drop very quickly. And then when you take off again, you got to take up, you know, go straight up almost or else you'll hit the top of the mountain. Right. Yeah. So with Luke, um, it, it is. So you have to. So you leave from Kathmandu and you there's a ton of air pollution. So you also have to deal with air quality uh, when you're flying out of there. And I'll tell you, we helicoptered in um, and you know, I look over, I had no idea who my helicopter pilot was, but look over and I've got this hot helicopter pilot next to me. I'm like, oh man, my friend John really hooked me up. Awesome. Um, and then come to find out uh, his name is Simone Moro, who happens to be a, a world-class athlete. He's known for a lot of first winter ascents. He's also an expert pilot and is known for um, doing some of the highest uh, altitude rescues for a helicopter. So I was in great hands, but I was just, you know, I was like, wow, I get so out. like a movie out. character. Like, oh, this superstar, you know, this, <laughs> this, this Italian superstar is. Um, but I also learned there that you, a regular pilot can't just fly into Lupla, um, whether it be a helicopter or the small planes. They have to go through an enormous amount of additional certification just to be able to fly into the airport in Lukla. So we're, you know, we're waiting for other team members to come on the next helicopter and we're watching the planes had started at that point. Um, Cause we took the first flight, took the first flight in and we also took the first flight or second flight out. So word to the wise, if you're going to do this trek, book your flights early in the day from this meteorologist, because the thermals as the temperatures heat up during the day, there are more thermals in the afternoon. And if you ever fly into a place like Denver or Aspen, you know, the bumps, they only get worse. So, um, so what we did for our flight out was we took, you know, took one of the small planes, but the thing is, is that you take off going down the runway. <laughs> so the planes come in 
they don't turn off. They leave them running because of the altitude and everything. They literally like deplane people really quickly. You get on really fast. And then the next thing you know, you barely have your seatbelt on and you're gone. So you're going down like this and you're going down and you just kind of hope that, 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 you know, they're going to catch the lift as they go through like the two mountains that are coming down, going through that valley. And then you take off. I thought we were in the clear about five minutes into the flight because everything was fine. I was like, awesome. It's going to be nice and smooth. And then all of a sudden, instead of going like this, the plane starts going like this. Like, She's this. moving her hands, shaking back and forth, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the, yeah, the, the poor. Oh, yeah. The poor stranger. Yeah, it's moving sideways. It's okay, not there going, you go. It's still going nice nice visual sideways. for radio there, Jennifer. Nice. <laughs> I know, but the poor man sitting next to me, I reached over and just grabbed as tight as I could to his shoulder. And I was, cause I was terrified. Um, but wow. that was an easy, that was an easy flight. And they are just, they are incredibly fascinating. And just the helicopters, you know, that there are, once you get into the mountain areas, um, you know, they're, they're not cars. Everything's done by foot, by livestock um, or, you know, or helicopters. And when I came down, from Everest Base Camp, I was in a place called Ferriche. And that's where they act, the Himalayan Rescue Association is based. So if there's an emergency and um, somebody say from base camp or 16,000 feet or you know anywhere higher than that, they will bring them first to Ferriche and try to stabilize them there and then fly them on to, to Kathmandu. And it was there that I started chatting with the pilot because, of course, you know, being the the nosy one that I am, um, I was like, hey, do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? And I said, how many (laughs) rescues, how many rescues do you do in a day? And rescue flights, he said, anywhere from four to 10 rescue flights. That might be for one person, two, three, could be for multiple people. That morning, he had already been to Everest Base Camp. He had been to Gorkshep, which is the the town, well, loosely called town, uh, town village close to, uh, closest to Everest. And then he'd been uh, over to Gokio Lakes to get somebody from there. And, you know, I was like, that was nine o'clock in the morning and he's already done three. And you figure there's 14 or 15 helicopters flying, you know, all day long. And if they're each doing four to 10 rescue flights. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, (laughs) I, you know, I, I, Altitude sickness hits everybody differently. You know, and I tell people this, it's just like Kilimanjaro is not a technical climb. I mean, there's no ropes or anything involved and it's just, a, it's a trail really. But the big thing is the altitude and, you know, uh, like I could wipe out a, uh, a Navy SEAL and a 65 year old woman. It's fine. You know, you just don't know. Um, but for me, I found it really kind of hit me at about 15,000 feet. Like after that, like headaches, and having no appetite and that kind of thing. Before that, it was just your typical like Colorado altitude stuff. You know, you your mouth's a little dry. You got to pee more. You know, you got a little shortness of breath, that kind of thing. But I wasn't nauseous or anything like that. But yeah. after about 15,000, I noticed there was a definite <laughs> shift for me. Did it hit you that way? Or was there a moment where you were like, oh, this is this is not my normal feeling? Yeah the, yeah, the comfort zone is gone uh, kind of feel. You know, I will tell you, uh, so I do have an advantage because I do live at 5280. So I live, you know, the Mile High City. Um, that automatically gives you just living uh, at altitude gives you a little bit of advantage. I also do spend a lot of time hiking, you know, Colorado 14ers doing a lot of hikes. So spending that time at elevation versus say someone else on our trek that was from Atlanta, um, she had a harder time than the rest of us. That being said, so I was fine. Oh, I probably it was about well, it was sixteen close to sixteen five at the Italian Research Center, um, which I didn't know this, but there's a research pyramid uh, that's with you know that's a couple of miles from Everest, Everest Base Camp, um, and it was fascinating to kind of see like what kind of research they're doing. You can also stay there. Um, so we were staying there, and I chose to order something. With, I ordered just like a tomato sauce pasta which would normally be very easy. Yeah. Worst decision <laughs> I made. It was, it was the worst because the heartburn after that, anything with tomatoes don't do above, I would even say above 14,000 feet. Um, so that was kind of a lesson learned. And from there, I kind of was like you started feeling like, Ugh. you know, I mean, you, you just, it's hard to sleep. It's hard to eat really hard to eat. Um, I was bummed because at base camp, that was like a gourmet meal. 
and I couldn't really eat it because yeah. you know, your body is just not happy. And that's why like people, are, you know, when, when they say, you know, people are spending, you know, weeks at Everest base camp that are going to the summit. That's the reason why, you know, you might be okay. You might be, your body's just trying to like level itself out with the altitude and, and with less oxygen, your red blood, uh, blood cells are, are very quickly uh, reproducing. And, you know, it, it's, you might be okay. You can give it a little bit of time, but there's also, you might have to go up and then come back down. And, um, you know, and, and you, you hit it right on, you know, the nail on the head of saying it affects every single person differently. You know, we had everyone in our group had at least some sort of symptom uh, you know, of at least a small headache. Um, you know, I will say I did take some, uh, just being on the, the cautionary side, I started an altitude medicine the morning that we left Luca. Cause I knew I would be fine. Like, cause we actually, I don't think a lot of folks realize that when you start the trek, you start at Lukla, but then you actually go down. So, um, it, and then you stay down, it was about maybe around 8,500 feet for the first night. Um, and so then, and then from there we just kept going up. So because we went down, remember there's also an uphill on the way back, which I had completely decided to block out of my brain mm -hmm. until I was hiking back on day 12 and day 13. Um, but you know, but it's, it is, and, it, and it's scary. And a lot of folks may not know if you get uh, altitude sickness, it can kill you and things can change very quickly. Um, and if you start showing and, and you know, if you're, if you're doing, whether you're going to Everest base camp or even just hiking in Colorado or Montana or Wyoming or Washington, um, you know, if you're going up in altitude, I kind of always do this trick and say, if you're going on a mountain destination, and you don't live in the mountains, start drinking water 48 hours before your trip. And that gives your body 24 hours where you're just pounding the water. And it gives you that additional 24 hours for your body to level out with the amount of the increased water consumption that you're doing. And that 48 hours, instead of just doing it like right when you're boarding the plane and thinking, oh, I'm going to Colorado, I need to start hydrate. No, think and do it 48 hours out. And That'll help you. And if you start getting that little headache, you have to stay, you start taking um, a lot of water in. Drink something with electrolytes. Drink the water uh, so that, you know, that hopefully it'll go away. And if it doesn't, then you do need to seek medical attention. What time of year did you do this? Was this February? No, I, uh, for Everest Base Camp, I did April. So your, uh, your only two options to do this kind of trek would be in the spring season or in the fall season. Um, so you could go uh, as, so you would do like their seasons basically are March, April, May. Because um, mm -hmm. remember, they also, as you get into the summertime, they do get a monsoon season. So, um, you know, it's not just, I think a lot of folks may know about India getting a monsoon season, but it is uh, a tremendous part of uh, Southeast Asia and Southern Asia that is in a monsoon season oh, yeah. during the summertime. So then you can also go September, October, November. But if you choose to go in November, it's going to be really cold. So just a heads up. <laughs> Right. So it took 13 days from the start to the finish. Yeah. So you, we could have done it in 12, um, but we chose to stay. So we had two wonderful Sherpas, uh, Gelgen and his father-in-law, Lakpa. Lakpa has summited Everest five times. He also went up on two additional trips, but his clients didn't make summit. So he's been up seven times. Um, and, you know, I mean, they're just amazing. And, and having a smaller group, which is the way I would suggest to do it, if you're going to do this type of trek, definitely do it with a trek, um, with a trek service, a trek guide. Like I said, mine was Dr. John Kondrowski. And if anybody wants to hit me up and shoot me a message, I'll be happy to share my information. But we had a small group. So that gave me the individual attention. And each person in our group really got to know our Sherpas and even got to know our porters. If you're in a large group, you may never get to know your porters, um, you know, and, and I just felt like it was just, I kind of felt like I suddenly became a member of their family and they're now a member of my family. Um, and, and that's that beauty of doing a small group. So for those of us who were thinking about doing it, give me the best uh, pieces of advice you could give and some mistakes you made that you could, if you had to do it all over again, what okay, wouldn't so you do? Advice. Yep. Advice. Um, I would uh, spend some time up in the mountains. I would do um, definitely cross train. Yes. You need to do some hiking and that sort of thing. But I also think you should do some uh, breathing techniques, uh, really focus in because that became very key for me um, and do activities that are going to be repetitive. So if you do like circuit training over an hour, you do the same three or four exercises repeating those over and over. That is training your nervous system to continually do the same moving forward. 
Um, also things that you want to take, uh, trekking poles, absolute must. Do not take brand new shoes. Make sure that they are broken in. I'll honestly tell you, I ended up leaving my uh, my hiking boots there. Um, somebody there can use them. Um, and they served me well, and it was time to let them go and somebody else use them. Um, you do not need to take as many snacks as you think you do. That was a big mistake I made. Food weighs a lot. Um, and so you don't need as many snack, uh, snacks. It's well supported. I didn't know that. I didn't know that there were villages, and I'm about to cough. <coughs> that's another thing it's called the kumbu cough um i didn't know that that was a thing because of the very very dry conditions and the very dusty conditions just about everybody gets what's called the kumbu cough so you just got to experience what it sounds wow, like sounds great um, i know i know it's like a lovely thing i just shared with you <laughs> um and then the whole thing about do not eat tomato sauce once you get above a certain point um and Really communicate when you're on a trek like this, let your, if you're starting to feel bad, you need to let your Sherpas know. Um, they are the experts in this. They, they've spent time taking people up. They know what to look for. Um, and if you keep kind of brushing it off and saying, I'm okay, I'm okay, you may only potentially get worse. So let them know if you're starting to feel, even the slightest little thing starts to feel off, they need to know. Um, was, was there a moment when you finally made it that you kind of, you know, it's emotional, you know, did you choke up? Did you like understatement? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, like I said, I started feeling bad. I started feeling really bad uh, when I got to base camp and I hiked in with Lakpa, the one that had summited Everest five times. Um, and he, you know, he was just, he's like, come on, Jen, go, go, go. Um, and when I finally got to the rest of the team, I literally bawled beyond bald when we turned when he turned around and hugged me that we had fully made it because it's really hard um it's really tough and i'll tell you you know i'm a peloton user and there is an instructor her name's christine cde a lot of folks know her as that but she is a master world and national champion uh, track cyclist and she has a mantra that is i am i can i will i do and i didn't know it at the time when I first started saying it, but how valuable her words would be for me. And I knew coming up when I was starting to like have like, Oh, can't breathe. I'm tired. I started saying it. And I knew if I was just saying those words, I was breathing. So if I was breathing, that was a good thing. Cause it also meant if I was breathing out, I was also breathing in. Um, and so especially trekking out because we were dealing with, I was going to do a live shot for the weather channel from there. We had weather moving in, which when the clouds start coming in, it kills internet service for everyone. Um, so, and then also being starting to feel really sick and also facing this weather coming in and that it was going to start getting dark. So we had to make the decision at 1:47 in the afternoon. It's like, okay, we are going to go, we're going to get back to Gork Shep. So hopefully I'll start feeling a little bit better. Um, but we had to go back a mile in base camp and then several miles back to workshop. So, and it's not, it's all through a boulder field. It's all like, it, it's just, it's a whole nother, like you're on a, like you're on Mars basically. Um, and so I started saying like repeated that. And then also Glennon Doyle, who's an author, her thing is we can do hard things. And I would say, I am, I can, I am, I can, I will, I do. We can do hard things or I can do tough things, um, you know, just said over and over. And I think you have to find the words that will give you a, a, a cadence, a pattern, and then let those people know as well. I mean, I, it was fun for me to say to Christine, hey, I'm using your words. Thank you on the way up. And then to send her another message of I did it. And you have no idea how much your words meant to me. That's great. So you went to Nepal after the big earthquake, which was what, 2015? Yeah, 2015. What does the recovery look like now in Kathmandu? Were you in Kathmandu for very long? No, uh, not for very long, but I mean, I did spend a couple of nights and we spent, uh, I spent a full day and we did a wonderful city tour um, and uh, with a local guide, which is another way if you're going to go, um, go visit really any city in the world, go with somebody local, go with a local guide um, to get the, the flavor of it. But, you know, it's interesting being being a meteorologist and also being a traveler, you could still see some of the earthquake damage in Kathmandu. Um, I think you also have to be aware that, you know, it is Nepal. It is a underdeveloped country. Um, Kathmandu is one of the poorest major cities in the world. 
Um, so you do need to be aware that it's not going to look like home. I'm just going to put that out there. It's definitely not going to look like home, but it was interesting to me. And then of course, having my friend, John, who, um, you know, had spent time because he stayed, he actually stayed after the earthquake to assist, help with some rebuild. Um, he has a PhD in geography. So he was also helping the USGS um, with some of the um, just gathering of data before that data was gone. Um, and listening to him and, and seeing kind of where you could still see some of the damage in the buildings in Kathmandu, then going to the mountains and getting into those mountain villages, which have pretty much fully, fully recovered. Um, and some of that is because uh, there's so many foundations and things that help those tourist outlets um, that they were able to recover faster than the, than, you know, than the heart of Kathmandu. So that to me was kind of an interesting of like, wow. I mean, it's just how critical the tourist dollar is in a place like that, just for their daily livelihood, but also for when there is a natural disaster, because, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when is the next earthquake that's going to come through, um, you know, that there's that potential, the avalanches that come through uh, there as well. So that was kind of an interesting thing. And, um, you know, it's also, I didn't know that they drive on the other side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they kind of drive everywhere. Right. <laughs> but that's, you know, so you, you, even just when you're walking around and cat being new, you, you have to pay attention, um, you know, and you cannot, you cannot, you, you can't be bashful and shy. It's like, if you make a decision to walk across the street, you just got to go. Cause if you've got your one little window to go, you got to take it. Did you combine work with any of this? I mean, were you filing reports to back home uh, uh, so reporting from Everest? Yeah, I did. I did do two uh, live shots for the Weather Channel, um, which was in and of itself the one that I got out that we we'd gone to base camp and we'd gotten uh, like we left at one forty seven. My shot was at five twenty five p.m. because um, they are so their time um, they are they're off our clock by fifteen minutes. Like India's off by thirty minutes. Nepal is off by fifteen. Look, it's one of the few countries that has a crazy time zone kind of thing, <laughs> um, and so. You know, it's like when when we were trying to set up my shot, um, you know, and I do all of this pretty much by myself, but my friend John was trying to help me, you know, just if nothing else, hold my stand so it didn't get blown over. Um, we're fighting with the clouds coming in. It started to snow on us. And I'm like, oh, no, we're losing. We're losing the ability to get an Internet, um, to get Wi-Fi, to get out, to get a signal out. And um, so we did that. At, that was like 16.9. And as soon as we were done, and I don't honestly, all the stars aligned for me to get that shot out. Um, everything went out. Like none of us had any kind of internet service to post anything on social media. Um, and so from there, the original plan was to actually go back to the um, to the Italian research pyramid and do the next day, uh, do a shot from there. And we ended up just kind of making the decision to go on and get me back to Ferrache so that I would start feeling a lot better. Um, and just, you know, it's kind of one of those of you've got to put your health first. And I thought it was kind of fun too, to do at 14,000 feet. I had Amadablam, uh, which is a beautiful, beautiful mountain peak that I think is about 20,000, might be 19 something. Um, and, you know, I'm standing here at 14,000 feet going, I'm, I'm on top of like a Colorado mountain, the highest mountains <laughs> in Colorado. Elbert, you know, is 14, I think it's 14402. Um, you know, it's like I'm standing on the top of Colorado, the rooftop of the Rockies. And yet there's so much around me that is so much higher. And, and they're not only like taller, the mountains, the Himalayan mountains, but they're, they just seem wider. They just seem massive. They, they just truly are, you know, and, and I think it's like a lot of folks think it's just up the whole way. Yes. There's a lot of up, but you go through and you're going through mountain villages. Like we went through an incredible forest. Um, we stayed at a place called, uh, um, the Rivendale Lodge. So if you are a Lord of the Rings fan, you might know. And I honestly felt like I'd stepped into a scene in, in Lord of the Rings staying there. Um, it's just an absolute delightful lodge there. But we were going through with rhododendrons that were in full bloom. Um, and then even when you get above treeline, it does get really dusty, um, which is why you were talking about some, some, some things like things that I learned, things you need. You definitely want to make sure that you take multiple um, like buffs or, you know, like a neck gator or something. Um, I wish I took three and I wish I would have taken one more. 
Um, just because, you know, you don't have a lot of opportunities to wash something in the sink and leave it to dry. You know, a couple of places like Namche, I did wash some clothes. Um, it's also too, the first part of the trek from Lukla to Namche was actually really warm. You know, I was hiking at times in, in a short sleeve shirt, um, you know, and just very comfortable at that. And then you get above that and you get above tree line and you need to have multiple layers and, um, and, and that sort of thing. But it's just, you know, it, it's the landscape alone, like going through the valleys and looking up and seeing these beautiful mountain peaks on the way down, there were moments where I just turned around and just took my look, you know, my last looks and, and so grateful and thankful that I stayed healthy, um, as healthy as you could be. Um, and you know, that, that I left, ready to leave, but not ready to leave. Um, you know, I, I wanted some rest, <laughs> you know, there's that, I really wanted some rest, but I was not done with spending time in Nepal. Um, the, the culture is so different than, I mean, I grew up in South Carolina, you know, it, it's so different than anything and anywhere that I've lived in the United States and learning, um, and being open to, you know, learning about, um, about, you know, about uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and, and going into the monasteries and, and seeing just these incredibly beautiful murals that, you know, and, and I was able to take pictures and video in one, the other two, I was not. And those for me, like taking that moment of take it all in and make your mental pictures and your mental memories. And, you know, I can share kind of from memory what I experienced there, but, but just there, their peacefulness about them um, as a culture, as a population, their kindness um, when you're in trouble. You probably felt the same thing on, on Kilimanjaro because there's a kindness that comes out in people that uh, when you're doing something extreme, and that's what this is, um, when you're doing something extreme that um, people will step up and take care of you. How long were you gone in total? Like three weeks? Um, not quite. No, I left here April 13th, got there with the time changes, got there on April 15th. Um, and then had the full day in Kathmandu on the 16th. Um, and then we flew to Lukla and immediately started hiking on the 17th. And then, um, I flew back on, let's see, what day did I fly back on? I flew back on the 29th and then uh, to Kathmandu and then flew back to the States the night of the 30th, got back here on May 1st. So pretty quick. I mean, yeah. And if you need to, and like I said, that was the one thing It's like, I didn't know about that you could arrange a helicopter flight out. So if you do not have, you know, quite that long to go that you don't have the time maybe to do the full trek back, then you can go and trek up and potentially take, you know, have a prearranged helicopter ride set for you that, you know, gets you back a few days quicker. But, you know, it's kind of for me, I was like, I, I, I committed, I committed to do the trek up and back. Um, and so ours ended up being 90 miles, um, which I still can't believe. I'm like, even just doing that, like 90, 90 miles, wow. you know, like when, you came, when you came back from Kilimanjaro, did you go, okay, yeah, it's all, you know, there's, there's altitude, but the distance alone. No, the distance was not that much. I mean, it was, uh, I think we were only doing, you get averaged out at like a few, three, four or five miles a day, but you go so slow for the altitude that it, it seems much longer. Um, but in terms of distance, it was never that, like I did a 10 mile hike to just to tra train before at hand, like in Pasadena up on Mount Wilson, I think it was, or Arcadia. And uh, I realized I just did that in a Saturday up and back. That was about 10 miles. And then I looked and there's like, oh, we're not going to, there's not going to be one day I'm going to be going nearly that much, <laughs> you know, in terms of actual footsteps and distance. No, it's just the altitude increase. And that's, it just made it seem longer and you're going so slow and they're always shouting pole pole, which means slow and in, in uh, Swahili. So <laughs> I mean, hurry up. <laughs> it means slow, slow in Swahili because people try to walk normally and they say you can't, you know, you have to walk slow like it's a walk in the garden to give your body time to acclimate. I mean, my trip up there was only five days, which is short. It's the shortest route, um, which many experts will say it's too short. <laughs> we didn't take an acclimatization day or anything like that. Most people do. Usually they run about seven, 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 eight days even. So I got a little bit of sickness. Like I went to um, Zanzibar after for a few days. 
just kind of laid around a pool and it felt like I was hung over. And I said, this isn't the normal fatigue, you know, this is like, I feel like, I think I probably got a little dose of altitude sickness up there. And uh, so like a genius, I went scuba diving, which was (laughs) because I'm a really smart guy. Wow. Uh, So anyway, but I survived and, uh, but yeah, like you said, it's dangerous. And well, I mean, for you, you said, you know, before you turned 50, you had all these places you wanted to go. What's next? What's next for <laughs> the traveling weather gal? Um, you know, I, I know a lot of folks are starting. So, by the way, like I kind of had the same thing when I came back. Um, it was not a normal jet lag. Yeah, it was. I got back on a Sunday and Monday and Tuesday. Um, I actually trained with a sports physiologist who's a nerve specialist. And so he was doing a lot to prep me to get ready with doing a lot of stuff to basically rattle my nervous system to get me ready. Um, and I came back and I did recovery session and he looked at me and he was like dead serious of do not do any kind of hard workout for the next two weeks. And done. I, was, <laughs> I, I, know, I was like, wait, you just gave me a free pass. Those are instructions <laughs> I can take. Yeah. But there were stuff like, I mean, I was still losing weight for like days after. Um, but that Monday, Tuesday, my body just felt like, felt like the Mack truck had run over me and then run back over me. And it was like, I couldn't really fall asleep, but I couldn't do anything either. My body was just like, just be, you did the right thing. Uh, just going and sitting on a beach, except for the, the um, scuba dive. diving. Uh, <laughs> <you> know, but, <laughs> and, and I think that's one thing that people also don't prepare you that if you're going to do some or any kind of extreme, um, you know, trek or whatever it might be, whether you're doing Kilimanjaro, Everest base camp, um, Annapurna is all, is on my list. Um, Machu Picchu also on my list, um, and, uh, the trek in Spain. Um, and then it's interesting, like just talking to people and suddenly like just the other day, I learned about, um, an Alpine loop in Nevada, uh, that's about 40 miles. Now that one's on my list. Um, have you done the Pacific coast trail? I've talked to some people that have done that. No. Um, you know, and I don't know if I'm necessarily cut out to be, the through hiker like that, that's a long way. <laughs> that's a, that's a lot of time with myself, <laughs> you know, um, you know, I have done parts of the Colorado trail, which is about a 500 mile trail. Um, I've done parts of that. I am considering possibly doing that one. Um, and then who knows, you know, it's, I think I've caught like this trekking bug. Um, but I also like to do things internationally. And yes, I did meet a few Americans along the way, but I thoroughly enjoyed meeting people from all over the world, from the UK to Malaysia um, that yeah. were doing the trek that were going, you know, and teams that were still on the way up going that we're going to try to summit. Um, you know, it's just, it's fascinating to go somewhere and do something where the majority of the people are from other places. Um, yeah. We've all met enough Americans, haven't we? <laughs> In 50 years, I think uh, we're due to meet some new ones. Yeah. That's one yeah. of the reasons I do this. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and and like why they're there. And, you know, people laugh at it because I talk to everybody. I mean, obviously. You know. <laughs> You're kidding. I can't see you not. Uh, I, can, you know, I can just picture you clamming up whenever you travel. Oh, uh, you know, even when I'm when I was like in my worst state of like crying and just walking and I was like. I am. I can. I will. I do. And then Gelgen, <laughs> one of our Sherpas, then when I would get like to basically a whisper, then he would start saying it for me. Um, you know, and it's just, oh, there are just so many, and so many lessons learned and so many realizations. And I think, and you probably you might feel the same way too. It's, you know, there's a saying that travel is the only thing that makes you richer. And I truly believe that that's that's the case. If you're willing and open to experience new people, new places, new cultures, um, and even if doing something this extreme is not on your list, there is something to be said about taking a challenging trip. And that challenging trip for you might be taking a solo trip for three days somewhere. Um, You need to go and... That's where you figure out what you're made of. And it doesn't mean that you have to go all the way to another country. You can go an hour from home if you've never traveled by yourself. Um, you know, you just, you learn so much about who you are and, and it gives you that time to really get in your head and, and look and, and assess your life and, and assess 
What really makes you happy? What makes, you know, what brings you joy? How can you bring joy to other people? Um, you know, it is another, another aspect of it. And, um, you know, it's like every day I'm still learning. I'm still like, oh yeah, that part of the trip kind of taught me this thing. Or like I said about the, the guy carrying the washing machine, there's always somebody else carrying a heavier load than me always. Um, but then coming home, you know, then re- you know, reassimilating back to the U S and the way of life and having a huge grocery store that I can run into around the corner or, you know, create, you know, just so much stuff at, at our fingertips. And most of the world truly does not have that, you know, and, and, and just they're so happy with what they have. And they're so happy to have a conversation with you, have a cup of tea, you know, honey, lemon, ginger tea is my new favorite tea. (laughs) Um, You know, and and it's, and it's, well, it humbles us, you know, when, when we travel, you see the world, how big it is and you realize you're just a small part of it that it's humbling and, and many people need to be humbled. Certainly in this country, they do, uh, they could use it desperately well, and, 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 and to know, know the world doesn't revolve around you. Yeah. That, uh, the world is a big place and it has a lot of other issues and problems. And there's a, a whole lot of people that don't care what we do. And it's a whole world out there you know, and that's and okay. How, yeah. And how lucky we are to have things like a hot shower. Yeah, you appreciate um, it. You know, a toilet. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. also, but you see a mountain that size, and you see, you know, it does make you feel small. I mean, you live around the mountains, but they are all—they're very humbling, just like it, the ocean. When you see the size of it, it's a—it's uh, a humbling thing. You know, it's like, yeah, wow, it, I'm tiny. Yes, yes, and you really have to respect Mother Nature, um, and and respect you know respect the landscape, respect the weather changing. Um, you know, these things are out of our control. And that's, you know, for me being a very strong type A personality, letting go of anything and letting somebody else take control is kind of a hard thing. Um, but, you know, but it's also a mo- uh, you know, do the things I'm a real big proponent of face your fears, do the things that scare you. And for me being one of those people who has struggled my whole life with um, being very afraid of heights. Yes. I've jumped out of a plane now twice. I don't really care to ever do that again, but I'm never going to say never. Um, you know, but going across, I had no idea that there were multiple suspension bridges that I had to go across <laughs> on the way up and on the way down, you know, and, and I just remember on the, there's one, it's the, it's called the Hillary bridge or referred to as the high bridge. Um, you know, I, um, had gotten, uh, the first morning, uh, Lockpog gave me, it's called a kata and it's the silk scarf, um, that they give you. And it's a blessing. It's a blessing for good luck and fortune and, love and peace and that's, you know, in your journey. And I kept that in my backpack the whole way. And I got several others along the way, including one from, um, uh, from a beautiful soul who lives part of the time. She's from Nepal, but she also lives the summers, um, up in winter park, Colorado. And it was just, she gave me the biggest smile and a mama hug when I just needed a mama hug from somebody. But with the, with the kata that Lakpa gave me, I kept it to the very, to the very end. I decided I was tying it onto the Hillary bridge, the high bridge. And so I go, I have my moment. I say, thank you, you know, for the, for the guidance. And I go to tie it and I'm, I made myself go to the middle of the bridge so that I had to face the fear that I'd already faced, tie it on the bridge. And I turn and look back and all of a sudden there is the longest train of donkeys about to step onto the suspension bridge that I've ever seen. <laughs> Meanwhile, going up, I had multiple times where I literally, there would be livestock coming from the other direction and we were, we were running. So I kind of laughed. I was like, this is, this is the perfect scenario of, I just said my peace and blessing. And now I'm running because <laughs> I don't want to be on any suspension bridge with any kind of livestock, um, you know, it's just, but it kind of, for me, it came full circle in that moment of, um, you know, you know, there's, there's things, there's so many lessons in our daily lives. And, and a big one for me was also slow down, which I think a lot of us got some of that at the beginning of COVID, but then as everything is now transitioning back to whatever our new normal is, I feel like a lot of us might've lost some of that. Um, and just kind of that reminder of whether you're trudging up a mountain and you are physically forced to slow down and go at a much slower pace than what you're used to because your body, you know, is forcing you to do that or because your Sherpa is saying, (laughs) you know, 
so you won't get sick, please slow down. Um, but I think there's also that moments of the gratitude moments and taking that time too to be thankful for getting through the day and getting through, you know, whatever figurative mountain that you face every day, people do face stuff every day. Um, whether it's the literal mountain that you're that you're hiking up or the the, the figurative one that you're struggling, how do I climb? And the only way to climb it is to take one step at a time. You can't get to the top unless you put one foot in front of the other um, and you face it and you go. That's great. And I know we uh, we should wrap this up right now and you got a busy life. You got to shoot probably another TV show, but where can people find you on social media and follow along with you? Sure. So uh, my website is swepedawaytoday.com, you know, last name broom. So you got to do something with. I get it. I see what you did there. (laughs) Um, So that's my website. You can find me like Instagram, TikTok. It's Jennifer Broom Travel. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, all of them. So, um, you know, but yeah, if, if somebody's somebody's listening and has more questions and is interested in doing this trek, um, I would certainly love to share you know, more uh, of how you do it. And, and um, again, I got to say a big shout out and thank you to my friend, Dr. John Kodrowski and for his guidance and, and our Sherpas, um, uh, Gelgen and Lakpa, you know, like, like they're my Nepalese family now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Before we leave, I just want to ask one thing. Why weather? Why, <laughs> what, what is it about weather that is fascinating to you and made you want to do it as a career? It's always changing. And it's also the one thing that everyone around the world shares. If, if, <laughs> if you see four old men on a bench, usually they're talking about the weather. Yep, you are correct. <laughs> it's Conversation so starter, no matter what the language or the country. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. It was great to see you again. I'm glad we could reconnect. Hopefully we'll get to do the Rocky Mountaineer or something. We'll hang in Denver at some point or uh, let me know when you're out here. Sounds awesome. All right. Jennifer Broom, everyone. Jennifer Broom, everyone.